questions, please. But <laughs> excuse me, sir. My name is Dick Prince. I beg your pardon, sir. I'd. Uh... I'd uh, like very much to have a few moments of your time, if you don't mind. I realize both you gentlemen are on your way to work this morning, but uh, my name is Dick Prescott. I'm the questioning photographer. Oh, oh, oh. hey, questioning photographer. Hey, why? I, I read your interviews in the paper every night, boy. Good. I wouldn't miss it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. You, had a, you had a good question there uh, one night last week. Uh, must have caused a lot of controversy. Oh, that, that must have been the one on whether or not the U.N. should outlaw the H-bomb? No. No, this one uh, was which is more authentic, the Kanazi or the Weehawken style of Mambo? <laughs> would you uh, get on with what you want us to do here, because we're a little late as yes, it sir, is. Yes, sir. Well, would you mind answering today's question and uh, letting me take your picture? Well, the privilege and the pleasure. Uh, would you like a profile or full face? No, no, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. First, uh, your name? Uh, Edward L. Norton. Edward L. Norton. And uh, your occupation? I'm an engineer. Engineer? <laughs> and subterranean sanitation. <laughs> And, uh, <clears throat> where do you live, Mr. Norton? I live in the garden spot of the world, Brooklyn, USA. Now, Mr. Norton, today's question is, in your house, who is the boss, you or your wife? I'd be very happy to answer that question. And my boss, I, in my household, I mm -hmm. am the boss of the household. <laughs> I think that any man that is afraid of his wife is not a man. Mm -hmm. And I can't stress this point too strongly, that a husband is the boss. Yes. Well, don't quote me, because if my wife reads that, she'll kill me. But uh, if I don't quote you, how can I print it? Can't you just use my picture? Well, Norton, you just proved to me something that I've suspected about you for a long time. What? You're afraid of Trixie. Oh, wait a minute. You're in no position to talk to me like that. No, no. You're not inferring. All I know, pal, is that if he had asked me that question, I would have said without hesitation that I am the boss in my household. I'm the one that gives the orders. I'm the one that makes all the decisions. <laughs> On the day we were married, I said two things. One, I do. Two, I'm the boss. Uh, pardon me, sir. Uh, what is your name? Ralph Cramden. Ralph <laughs> Cramden. Mr. Cramden, I'm going to print what you just said. Uh, okay? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Go, go, go. Answer him. Go ahead, big shot. Go on, go on. <laughs> go ahead and print it. He's a bus driver, and he lives in Brooklyn. Bus driver in Brooklyn. Now, let me see. Just hold that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Cramden. You'll be in tonight's paper. Goodbye, men. Ho, <laughs> 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 What are you laughing at? I'm just, I'm just picturing what you're going to look like in a French foreign legion uniform. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that I'm afraid of Alice? I know you. We're buddies for a good long time, Alf. I know you pretty good. Now, just take a little advice. Get on the phone and call that newspaper and tell them to hold the presses. Stop the presses and don't print that statement. Oh, no. Not me, Norton. That's the kind of a thing you do, but not me. And that's the difference between us, Norton. That's the difference. I am a boss. You are a mouse. <laughs> well, I got one more thing to say. I'd rather be a live mouse than a dead ball. <laughs> right. Now, I want to know why you guys are laughing. <laughs> uh, it hits home, doesn't it? Um, how many of you recognize who that is? Some of you, yes. The older generation, the honeymooners, right? What were the characters' name? The heavyset guy is who? Well, that, what's his character name? Ralph, yeah, and the other guy's Ed, right? And uh, we've got a couple more clips for you. But I think if uh, you've been married and you watch that clip, the reason why it's so funny is you get it. You get it. And uh, in fact, your, part of your homework this week is going to be to go on YouTube and watch the rest of this because it is incredible. I don't, I don't have 30 minutes to show all of it or 26, but... Uh, Take some time. It's uh, the honeymooners just kind of look for head of the house, and uh, uh, you, you'll enjoy that. Many of you ladies are going to relate to this, um, but one of my wife's greatest fears is car problems. Any of you ladies relate to that? I see a bunch of head shakes out there, right? As 
car problems, you know, afraid the car is going to break down, something's going to go wrong. And um, to be honest, when we first got married, I didn't relate to that. I did not relate to that. Uh, I, you know, to me, what's the big deal if the car just breaks down in traffic, just drive to the side of the road, or if the car's not starting, you know, no big deal. Uh, but, but they were a big deal. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, I grew up in a home where um, my dad would always come home every so often with a new junker. And we'd work on it. Back east, because they use salt on the roads, you do a lot of body work, but you do a lot of mechanical stuff as well. And so we always had different cars that we were driving, and we drove a lot of junkers, you know. And, and for me, it was no big deal. You know, one time the clutch broke in one of the cars I was driving, and some of you that, that know a little bit about mechanics know that in the old days, before everything was computerized, uh, you could just go under the hood and turn the idle up, and you could drive it home, you know. And it, you'd kind of limp home, but you still could get to where you were going. And so, you know, driving a junker wasn't really a big deal for me. But I couldn't understand why my wife wouldn't drive the junker. <laughs> I know, I know, you guys can pray for Carol. <laughs> I wanted my wife to change. Now, after 28 years of marriage and 22 in counseling as a pastor... I've come to this conclusion, and it's, it's pretty well established in my mind. And it's this. You might want to find a place to write this down, because it applies to all of us. All married people wish their spouse would change. I mean, is that true? I mean, honestly, I mean, some of you aren't going to raise your hands because you don't want to get into a fight, you know, kind of like Ed Norton, right? But all of us want our spouse to change. And the way this works is sometimes these desires are unexpressed. But usually as time goes on, they, they become more refined, more focused. They, they become deeper. And, and the problem becomes that these desires for change escalate. And they become an incredible barrier to intimacy in the marriage. They become a huge closed door, a roadblock. It's not uncommon for these desires for change in our spouse to intensify. And they begin to, to raise their heads in, 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 in fits of, of anger, whether it's a passive, uh, inhaled anger, it's like, well, I'm going to show him, or it's an outburst of anger of let me tell you. And, and, uh, and what happens is that eventually there is harsh language. There's mean behavior. And all that reveals to us is the intensity of the person's desire to see their spouse changed. I was reading... Uh, uh, the book that's why I based this series off of the author, and, and he shares this, the story of, of, of one wife, and she reports that her husband had pushed her against the wall, and when she complained, this is what he said. This reminds us of, of where this can go. He said this, when you start acting like a wife, I'll start treating you like a wife. Until then, you get what you deserve. Wow. You see, that statement, when you start acting like a wife, is really coded words for saying, I expect you to change. I expect you to change. And the women aren't exempt from this because a wife may, in the heat of a fight, say something like this, screaming back or with a raised voice and raised blood pressure. I'm sick and tired of picking up after you. It's time that you grew up. Again, another codified statement communicating that you are not matching up to my expectations. 
Now, I hope these two examples are extremes, but I've been around long enough, and Carol have been through some of these to know that, that they do happen. But whether these extremes would characterize your relationship, more than likely you fall somewhere in, in a continuum uh, between these examples that reflect your desire for your spouse to change. It could be the way they look, the way they dress, the way they care for themselves, the way they take care of things around the home, uh, the way they handle their finances, uh, any kind of thing like that. I mean, even as crazy as how you roll up the toothpaste, whether you squeeze it in the middle or roll from the bottom, which is really hard to do nowadays with plastic tubes if you haven't figured that out. But there's no limit to the potential areas of difference and expectations that happen and can exist when you bring two unique people together. And many times your thoughts are simply these. If only my spouse would change. If only my spouse would change. And you respond to this desire in one of two ways. Either you express your frustration, or maybe for some of you, you've just simply thrown up your hands and you have given up. Both of which become a barrier to growth and intimacy in the marriage relationship. Gary Chapman, in his, his book, asks this question and says this, so what is the problem? What is the problem? And I think his three responses are on target. He says, first of all, in, in desiring for our spouse to change, and by the way, change is just another word for growth, because you don't grow without changing. He says, the first thing of why this is a problem is that we start in the wrong place. We begin in the wrong spot to change our spouse. Secondly, he says this, which is really true as well, he says, we fail to understand the power of genuine love. And thirdly, he says this, we lack the skills to effectively communicate our desire for our spouse to change. So how do I get my spouse to change without manipulating them? Whether it's tweaking things behind their back to set it up to go the way you want or whether it's an outburst of anger or isolation. How do I get my spouse to change without manipulating them? Well, before we answer that question, there's a couple of essentials we have to understand of where the root of the problem comes from. So I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to open to Genesis 3. If you've got your teaching outlines, as I mentioned last week, I put every verse in there so that you have God's truth with you to take home. I would encourage you to circle, to make notes, to highlight as, as what works for you so that you can get the most benefit from what God has for us this morning as we talk about learning to grow together. Last week, as we talked about being a team, about working together, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 and Genesis chapters 2 and and we saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone and that God created a, a, a co-worker, a teammate, a partner for Adam that was his complement. Where Adam was strong, Eve would have been weak. And where, where Eve was strong, Adam would have been weak. And we see that God made the first couple and he formed Eve from the rib and, and God conducted the first wedding ceremony there in the Garden of Eden, which we have his brief sermon out of G in Genesis 2.24. And so the question is, how did we fall from paradise to reality of where we are today? Well, all you have to do if you're reading the Bible is to continue reading. Because in chapter 3, we see what went terribly wrong. We see the train wreck 
that has brought us to the place where we are today. In fact, if you've got your teaching outlines, look at Genesis 3, 1 with me there. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Most of you, if you've been to Sunday school or if you've attended church at some point in your life, you know where this story's going. This is talking about what is often called the original sin or the first sin. It's where Adam and Eve made the choice to disobey God. And Satan enters the picture here in the form of a serpent and begins talking to to the woman, and he begins to, to challenge her and to tempt her and to begin to cause her to question what God has said. And by the way, Satan works the same way today for you. You begin to rationalize your behavior when it is in con- contradiction to God's word. Same process today. And, and they were told that they could do, have any fruit of the garden. There just was one tree they couldn't eat of, and that was part of God's original command, And what we see, though, is in this context, and I'm not going to take time to develop this, is that Eve was tricked by the devil's deception and temptation. Satan did then as what he does now, as he twisted what God had said. And Eve took of the fruit and ate of it. And then she gave some to her husband, who willfully ate as well. And the bottom line reality is both chose to disobey God. And that brings us to the next verse, which begins to take us where I want us to go in this section this morning. Because in Genesis verse 7, it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. You see, sin changes us. God, in his infinite wisdom, has established boundaries for us as, the, as the, the lines on the road and the guardrails. And he says, listen, you can drive wherever you want, but, but I've established these boundaries. Because if you break those boundaries, it's going to change you. It's going to harm you. Those boundaries, by the way, are known as the Ten Commandments. And there's other uh, instruction that God gives us. They're not because God hates us, because he wants to reign in our parade. No, he's, he's like the loving parent that says to the child, don't stick that paper clip in the electrical outlet. Knowing that if the child does, they're going to get hurt. And so God establishes these boundaries. Unfortunately, when we break through those boundaries, we change and we're never the same. In fact, we we change in a way because it becomes easier to to, to go that path again. And the more we do it, the more desensitized we come, become to our disobedience, and the more hard-hearted we become, and the closer we become to the consequences which will come from our own choices. In this particular case, as innocence was lost, they realized that they were both naked, the text tells us. And they set about to cover up their sins and to create coverings for their loins from leaves sewn together. They tried to cover up the damage that had been done. But there was no way to put the egg back in the shell. It was too late. And then as we move on in verse 8, we see this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Do you see what else happened here? Not only were they changed, but their perspective and their relationship with God was changed. You see, before that, they gave no thought to to having a conversation with God, to fellowshipping and communing with God, and as he would show up, they would enjoy each other. But now, because of their sin, they were afraid of God. 
And so they hid themselves by sowing fig leaves. I mean, think about this for a moment. It's not the smartest thing to think you can hide behind a tree or a bush from God, is it? I mean, he created everything. He knows everything. Theologians, they call this the noetic effect of sin. And that simply means, if I can just put it bluntly, is people become more stupid when they sin. Or the polite way would say they become less smart. Sin dulls our intellectual capacity. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. And here it is, but they became futile in their thinking. Uh, they, they became less smart. And their foolish hearts were darkened. In the midst of the moment when reality hits, Adam and Eve think that they can cover up what's happened using fig leaves and hiding behind a bush. Many times we choose the same thing today, to try to cover up our sins rather than owning them. Well, what's incredible about this passage is that God did not write Adam and Eve off just like he doesn't write us off. He had to deal with the mess that they created. And so God seeks them out and he finds them. And when he finds them, as we skip down to Genesis 3.10, we see Adam's response. He says this in in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, this is Adam speaking, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. I believe God went to Adam first because Adam was responsible for the family, the family, the team of Adam and Eve. Adam was responsible. And when Adam responds that way to God's question of, where where are you? God's response to Adam is this, who told you, in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now let me just say something, is that God didn't ask that question because he didn't know what had happened. God asked that question to test Adam's heart, to bring Adam to the place of owning his own choices. And what happens here is what still happens today. Because in the next verse, we see that Adam essentially says, yes, I did it, but. Yes, but. Yes, but. And we look at the next verse and it says this, and he says, the woman who you gave, who you gave to me, uh, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Oh God, it's not my fault. Yes, I did it, but it's your fault because that girl you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate it. Don't we see that today? There's always a scapegoat and someone else to blame for our behavior rather than owning it. And so God then turns to the woman. And her response is pretty similar. She says yes, but as well. Look in verse 8, it says there, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. This is what changed everything. Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden introduced, should I maybe more correctly just say it plunged, all of creation into sin, to be tainted by sin. From, From individuals to actually the physical creation itself. And so God had to clean up this mess, and he does. And, and there's three highlights I want to just draw here. First of all, we see that, that God addresses the issue with the gospel. Go ahead and write this down in your outlines. The gospel is revealed. The gospel message, as you know, is, is simply the truth about Jesus Christ. 
that he came and was a perfect man, fully God and fully man. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. He paid the payment that we ourselves could not afford to pay or did not have the ability to pay. He took our place. He died in our place. He hung on that cross in payment for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. Biblically speaking, that is the gospel. It's God's reversal of what Adam has done. And as we look at the text here, we see a glimpse of the gospel. In fact, as God speaks to to the serpent, we see that the first instance, the first glimpse, the first ray of the gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed in Genesis 3.15. Scholars call this the proto-evangelon. Proto means first. Evangelon speaks of the gospel. It's the first time in the Bible that we see what God was going to do in response to Adam and Eve's choice. And in verse 15 we read as he curses the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, obviously, for that last phrase to make sense, we have to understand it from our perspective or from a perspective down the road. I'm not sure that Adam and Eve would have understood what was saying. But but biologically speaking, the seed uh, does not come from the woman, but yet he speaks of the, the seed of the woman because of the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to speak about how this seed, this offspring of of Eve, of mankind, would be bruised. His his heel would be struck by the the serpent, by, by the devil. But in the process, Satan would be defeated because the serpent's head would be crushed. And here we have a glimmer of hope as the first time as the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented. You see, it's the power of Jesus Christ in our life that's able to reverse what was lost in the garden. And by the way, the serpent was cursed. And then God goes on to speak to Eve and then Adam about the consequences of the choices they made. In verse 16, it says this, God speaks to the woman as we see that that God addresses or reveals this conflict that would come into existence between husband and wife. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Simply, that's a reference to apparently before the fall, there was no pain in producing offspring. But now, without the advances and help of modern medicine, it's one of the most, if not the most, painful thing a woman can go through, giving birth to a child. It's, it's a consequence because of the fall. And then he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I, I want you to, 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 to catch what's being said here. Is God is saying... Not that because you sinned, I'm going to make these things happen. He's saying the consequences that you have kicked off by your disobedience, the the change that you've kicked off by not following my obedience, the consequences are going to be now there's going to be pain in childbirth and as well is that the marriage relationship is going to be filled with conflict. Before we move on, there's two things I want you to get here, and it's this. And this is important to understand as we talk about the fall of man and the sin nature. It's this. There's two components or two parts, two areas in which the sin nature works. Go ahead and write this down. The first aspect of the sin nature is what's called self-legislation. This is being your own boss. It's calling the shots making the choices for your life, sitting on the throne of your life, whatever uh, figure of speech you want to use. That's the first component of that. 
Now, before I move on, I need to say that God calls us to, to legislate our own lives, but, but when sin comes into the picture, we take it to an unhealthy extreme. We no longer want to submit to God-given authorities. We want to control our own lives and our own destinies. The second aspect or component of the sin nature is that of self-gratification. And what we see here is is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they unleashed an appetite for pleasure. You see, God designed pleasure. He created us to enjoy pleasure. He created us so that we can see and color, that we can enjoy beautiful sunshine. He he set us up so that we can feel the warmth on our arms, that we can enjoy the, the fragrance in a beautiful garden. He, he established us so that we have taste buds that, that can distinguish the taste and can, can enjoy uh, a fruit like a, a ripe nectarine or, or other things in life. God has designed the human and wife relationship so they can enjoy physical pleasure in the, the physical relationship. So God isn't against people finding pleasure. But because of the introduction of the sin nature, we take it to an extreme. And our desire to to feel good often causes us to disregard what God has said and to do damage in our own lives. And so God says to the woman and to the man later, These are the consequences. These are the results that are being kicked off because of the choice that you made. There's going to be pain in childbearing. And then he says this, Your desire shall be to the woman, says to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we read that first part and we just think, Oh, doesn't that sound so cute? The wife's desire is going to be for her husband. But the reality is, the truth is just the opposite. This word for desire is uh, used two times in the Old Testament. It's used once here, and it's used once over in chapter 4, Genesis 4-7. And when it's used in Genesis 4-7, it's used where God uses it talking to Cain. Now, if you know anything more about the Bible, you know that Cain tried to worship God on his own terms, and his brother, Abel, worshipped according to what God said, how God said to worship. So Abel brought the animal sacrifices that obviously God had instructed, but Cain did not. So since Cain could not take out his anger on God, he took it out on his brother. His jealousy, his bitterness, his resentment brought him to the place of sinning against God by murdering his brother in a field. Before that happened, though, in verse 7 we read this, and God speaks to Cain and he says, If you do well, Will you not be accepted? God says to to Cain, if you just do what I ask you to do, won't I accept it? But Cain was bent on this. And then he says, and if you do not do well, you don't do what I'm asking. Sin is crouching at your door. And it what? What's the word there? What's it say? It desires to have you or is for you but you must rule over it. You see, as we think about this word desire, used in these two places in Genesis, what we see is that it's speaking of the idea of control. And God warns Eve is that as a result, the impact of sin is that she is going to want to control her husband. One female theologian said this in interpreting this passage, the woman's urge is not a craving for her man, whatever he demands, but an urge for independence, indeed a desire to dominate her husband. 
And as a result, as we go to the next slide, as we move on in this text, we then see of the husband, because he's not off the hook either. Because then it says in the text, but he shall rule over you. This is the Hebrew word mashal. It can, it can speak of different kinds of, of, of leadership, but, but more than likely in this text, it's speaking of a, of a harsh, dictatorial, dictator type of leadership that's spoken here. One that is, that is unloving, lacking in compassion, that is black and white, that is harsh. And what we see here is, is that as a result of the consequence of their disobedience now, there's going to be conflict in the marriage relationship. Both spouses are going to want their partner to change to their expectations. The third one, you can write this down, is, is that he reminds us as well that we, that, that we live in a hostile world. And he tells Adam that because you listen to my, your wife, and it's not saying that God, God's not saying here you shouldn't take input from your wife. He's saying, Adam, because you failed to protect your wife, because you failed to be a leader in your home and let this happen, as a result of it, you're gonna, the, the consequence is uh, you're no longer going to be in the garden. You've lost that privilege. And because the ground has been cursed, now surviving is going to be an incredible, laborious task. You're now going to find out what thorns and thistles are all about. And by the sweat of your brow, hard labor, you will now eat until you return to the ground, speaking of a lifetime of difficulty. So as we look at this passage, we're reminded that it was Adam and Eve's failure that introduced sin into humanity and in turn the impact that it would have on relationships. Let's click off the next video segment here. Watch this one. Hey, honey, supper ready? No, Ralph, it'll be a little while before it's ready. Oh. You want to give me the evening paper, darling? Because I just want to take a look at that contest. Oh, I, I didn't bring the evening paper home tonight. Well, you always bring the evening paper home. That's right, I always bring it home. But from now on, that paper is never entering this house. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. I don't like its editorial policy, that's why. Well, Ralph, what's wrong with its editorial policy? They just cut out off an Annie. Now, listen, Ralph, you know perfectly well that I've been following that puzzle contest. Well, never mind. It'll be a little while before supper's ready, so I'll just run down to the corner and get one. You will do nothing of the kind. That paper is not getting into this house, Alice. Uh, didn't the head of the household show it to you? There it is, right in there. Out! Get out! How could you, Ralph? How could you? Five men, Ralph. Five men answered this question, and you were the only one to make an idiotic statement like that. Why, Ralph? Why? Because I was the only one brave enough to make that idiotic statement. That's why. <laughs> Ralph, do you think if they'd asked me that question, I would have said that I was the boss? How could you? How could you, Alice? You're a woman. Remember that. Women aren't bosses. Men are bosses. Men. They do it all. Men run this world, Alice. Men. They're responsible for the shape the world's in. Men! Well, I'm sure glad to hear one of you admit it. <laughs> Just kills you, don't. Just kills you that you're a woman. And instead of being a leader like a man, you've got to be a follower. That's what women are, you know, followers. Men! They've done it all. Done it all. All the great inventions, men. 
Men have done all the great things since the beginning of time. I'll give you a perfect example. There'd be no America if it wasn't for Christopher Columbus. There'd be no Christopher Columbus if it wasn't for his mother. <laughs> Tell you something, Ralph. Go ahead. Go, go a little bit more. I am never going to refer to that ridiculous article again. But I want you to understand something once and for all. There never was and there never will be a boss in this house. Now let me straighten you out about something. <laughs> there has been, there is, and there always will be a boss in this house, and that boss is me. I'm glad Norton brought the paper down. I'm glad you saw it. Because today is the day that I was emancipated. I'm the boss, Alice. And you might as well get it into your head. And I'm glad about it. Very glad I'm the boss. All right. <laughs> oh, it's a little uneasy, huh? Got kind of nervous laughter going on there. A uh, little bit of humor. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know... <laughs> I think we've all probably had situations, maybe not like that, but, but similar where there's that conflict that arises. And so the challenge is, is, is um, why, does this, why does this conflict exist? And, uh, and we fail to grow because of three things. We've, we start in the wrong place. Secondly, we fail to understand the power of love and we lack the skills to effectively communicate to our desire, to our spouse, our desire for them to change. So, and there's three application keys I want to talk about here, and go ahead and write this down in your outline. The first one is this, is that change begins with, not your spouse, two-letter word, begins with an M, ends with an E. Change begins with me. The reason there's no change is because you and I start in the wrong place. We begin, we fail to work on the person that we really have the power to change, and that is ourself. And Jesus powerfully taught it this way, where he says in Matthew 7, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log? that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think if we're honest, we would say it's always easier to see how our spouse needs to change. But we fail to see our own need to change. Chapman says this in the book, he says, they focus on their spouse's failure before they give attention to their own shortcomings. They see that, that little speck in their spouse's eye and begin to go after it by tossing out a suggestion. When that does not work, the overtly, the overtly request a change. When that approach meets with resistance, they turn up the heat by demanding that their spouse change or else. For there they, are, they move on, from there they move on to intimidation and manipulation. Even if they succeed in bringing about some change on the part of the spouse, this is not the kind of change that most people desire. Therefore, if you really want to see your spouse change, you must start dealing with your own failures. Your own failures. I'd hope to have some mirrors here and to say is, is that when you want your spouse to change, the best place to look is in the mirror. Because that is the person that you have the most influence over. And that is you. You are the person that can begin by changing yourself. Say that uh, your spouse is 95% of the problem, and you are only 5%. If you improve on that 5%, your marriage will get better. 
And in the process, God will use the changes in your life to influence your spouse. The place to begin is with ourselves. So often we want our spouse to change. Every one of us does, but we begin in the wrong place by trying to change them rather than changing us. If I were to ask you to make a list, make a list of all the things in your spouse you would like to see changed, you could probably start jotting them off. You might come up with 10, 15, or more. Uh, The typical guy will come up with 27 things he would like his wife to change. But then if I were to ask you to make a list of your own failings, he would only have four. Uh, Chapman tells the story about one wife that came back with a list of 17 things she wanted her husband to change. But the page listing her own shortcomings was blank. She said this, I know you're not going to believe this, but I honestly can't think of a single thing I am doing wrong. (laughs) That's not true. So how do I begin to focus on me? Well, you need to seek some help. First of all, let me encourage you to, to make a list a list of the things that you could improve on that that would change your relationship with your spouse. I would begin, go ahead and write this down, I would begin by talking to God. Talking to God. In in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, David said this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. My friends, that is a prayer that when you pray it with sincerity, God will answer. In the book, he shows a list that two, a couple came up with of the ways they could change when they began to pray that prayer. God, search me. Know my heart. Try my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. The second thing you can do is talk to your friends, not about the failures of your spouse, but of ways and things that they see where you could grow. The third group you could talk to is your parents or your in-laws. Talk to them. I was, we had a conversation with somebody recently and um, it was a mother-daughter and it was about parenting issues. But I thought it was very incredible. And, and the conversation as recounted to us by the mother when something like this, she said, my daughter came to me and asked, she said, is there anything you see in my parenting of their kids that I could improve on? And this wise, godly mother said, well, if you, do you really want me to, to do that? I don't want you to ask just to make you feel good, but do you really, do you really want me to, to respond honestly? To which the daughter said, of course I do. And the mother went back and said, well, these are two or three things that I have found that you might want to work on. And as a result, their relationship grew closer. The people that know you best, your parents, are those that are in a good position to help you walk through those issues. And then number four, if you really get bold, and I I don't know how you can do this sometimes without starting a fight, but it's to talk to your spouse. If you really want to know, talk to them. So the homework for this week, give me the next slide. Oops, go back one. The homework for this week is to, I want you to make a list. Take 15 minutes I don't want you to make a list on what your spouse needs to change. I want you to make a list on what you need to change. Because you can make a difference in your marriage when you begin with me, yourself. The second key we see is not only do we begin in the wrong place, but secondly, we we fail to understand the power of love. 
We need to bring love back into our relationships. We talked about that week last week. Instead of being enemies, we need to be teammates. We need to be partners helping each other grow. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep uh, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a lot we could say here, and I don't have time to develop this fully, but, but have any of you heard of uh, Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? And in his book, he talks about how all of us have a tendency to feel loved in a different way. And more than likely, your wife's number one love language, and it's a mix, there's not necessarily, but usually one that stands out, is probably your number five if you're a guy. And as a gal, your, your number five is probably your husband's number one, and so it's not your native way of communicating love. The book goes on to talk about five different ways of, of showing love. Some of you, uh, your love language is words of encouragement. Uh, you sp- somebody speaks words to you, somebody leaves a note for you, that is more effective than anything else. You feel appreciated and you feel loved. For others, that's the act of service. Taking the time to maybe do the dishes or to help out in a yard task, if it's a guy, that when somebody does something like that, that means more than anything else. For others, it's quality time. It's, it's hanging out together, spending time together. Uh, doing things together. Uh, another, the fourth one, is physical touch and closeness. Some, some just, just uh, feel loved when they're, they're touched or they receive a hug. And then the fifth one is, is gift giving. And what's amazing is that if you go through that list, there's probably the, the things that you're saying, yeah, I, 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 feel, I, feel, I feel loved, I feel appreciated when... Somebody gives me an encouragement or somebody does something for me or somebody spends time with me. And so the challenge is, is to bring love back into your relationship and to begin to speak your spouse's love language. So often what happens in the marriage is that if a wife's love language is encouraging words, she might think, I'm going to leave my husband a note. But if your husband's love language is gifts... Guess what? It just goes right over his head. And in turn, you might become offended because, because you see the note there wasn't even opened in the lunch pail that you left. Because that's not his love language. But in turn, he wants to show his love for you and he goes out and he buys something for you. And, and you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's nice, thank you. But he, he, he reads right away that, you know what, I, I missed the target here. And so we, need, we, we underestimate the power of love here to break through these differences. What's amazing about the power of love is that many times, I've, I've, heard, I've heard both spouses say this in different ways, but, but they'll say, if my, if my spouse just loved me, if they just said something encouraging to me, I would be more than willing to, 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 to work on these other areas. You see, love is really about putting the other person first. That's what biblical love is all about. When God loved the world, he put our needs first by sending his son to die on the cross. And, and his love for us becomes a model for the husband and wife's marriage relationship, our call to sacrifice for our spouses. And here's the third area, and this is probably what everybody wanted to get to, is how to change your spouse. And it's this. Here are some guidelines for helping your spouse to change and grow. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says this, Faithful are the words of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me give you five guidelines for helping your spouse to change. First of all, pray about it. Pray about it. God is, why am I asking for this? Is it something I can just uh, let roll off my back or is it something that I need to say something about? God, help me examine my own heart. Is my motive and intentions correct? Am I really desiring this so my husband or my wife can get better or just for my own benefit? 
Here's a second practical one. Do it after a meal. How many of you have seen the Snickers commercial? We all become grumpy before we eat. Do it after a meal. We're always happier after we eat. The third one is this. Always show dignity. Do it in private. The the desire for change will not go anywhere if you try to do it in front of the kids or you make cutting remarks in front of friends or neighbors or family members. You're just actually eliminating the chances that your spouse is going to hear you. D is the right time. You know what? Just because it's important to you doesn't mean that the time you bring it is the right time. You've got to understand your spouse. Uh, You've got to understand this in a lot of areas of life. When in the area of parenting, we talk about how the best time to give instructions to your kids is not when you're correcting them. No, the instruction is better received in a time of non-conflict. So if, if, if you and your spouse are having words, now is not the right time to try to change them because their shields and walls are up and, and the windows and doors are battened down and, and, and they're closed. But the right time is a time of non-conflict. Maybe after you've had some time together, a good time. And here's the fifth one. Go ahead and write this down. No more than one request per week. No more than one request per week. And one way that you can do this before your spouse is to say, um, is, there, is there a good time I could talk to you about something I, I would like to see improved? And if they say no, you have to honor that. No, I don't want to talk about it. But you know what? It's going to pique their curiosity and more than likely... They'll come back and say, well, let's talk about that now. What is, it, what is it you wanted to talk about? And what you've done is you've helped them prepare their hearts to, to be able to, to, to engage in this conversation of change. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and get ready. Just wait until after this last video clip is done. Let's kick off the last video clip, please. chicken is a little well done too. Pause it for a second. So what's happened in the story is that um, uh, Ralph goes back to work and his buddies are just oohing and on at him. And one of the bosses comes in and says, I don't believe this is true. And he says to, to Ralph, if, uh, if, if you really are the boss of the home, call your wife and tell her I'm coming home for dinner tonight. Ralph then proceeds to call his wife, Alice, and uh, she hangs up on him. (laughs) Apparently she's working, I guess. And uh, so him and Ed decide they're going to cook dinner themselves, which turns out to be a fiasco. And the boss is coming over to see if Ralph is really the head of his home. That's where we're at now. Kick it off. What is this? What happened? <coughs> uh, tell the fence to blow. I'll settle with him on payday. <laughs> Hello, Alice. <laughs> All right, here it is. When I called you up today, I wanted you to come home and cook because I invited fence to blow over here to have something to eat. I wanted to show him that I was boss of the house. But when you hung up on me, there was nothing to do but me to come home, cook it, and say that you cooked it when he got here. All right, Ralph. Did it ever occur to you that if you'd asked me to cook supper instead of ordering me to do it, that I would have been very happy to cook supper and you could have had him over here? Come in. Six o'clock on a button. I'm ready for supper. There ain't going to be any supper. Well, I'm not surprised. I didn't think there would be. Oh, hello, Mr. Fensterblau. Please excuse this mess. Oh, hello, Mrs. Cramden. I guess I owe you some sort of an apology. I had planned to have dinner already when you got here, but while I was in the midst of cooking, that crazy stove went bluey and made this terrible mess here. So I guess the only thing that I can do is uh, give you a rain check, and, well, if you can come tomorrow night, I'll cook you the greatest meal you ever had. Gee, that's awfully nice of you, Mrs. Cramden. I'll be here. Good. Well, Ralph, I... Guess I owe you some money. No, that's okay, Joe. We're even. <laughs> okay. Just be here tomorrow. See you tomorrow night, folks. Night. Baby, 
You're the greatest. Ooh, okay. So as the worship team comes and gets ready, um, can I just encourage you, first of all, go watch the video, get it on YouTube, homework. Homework number two, would you make a commitment to take 15 minutes this week to make the list? And it's a list between you and God and yourself, nobody else. If you want to share it with your spouse, you can. But uh, make your list and work on that. The third thing is, and I forgot to mention this when I was covering this point, I want to ask you to bring love into your marriage this week. I want you to, to at least one time speak your spouse's love language. Would you do that? You see, because when we help each other grow, we're learning to grow together, it begins when we begin to focus on ourselves. It begins, it continues when we focus on love. And then finally, it continues as we bring about our requests in the right way, with the right attitude, and at the right time. Lord, I stop to thank you for the message this morning. Pray that you might use it to help us as couples to move forward in our relationship and to truly grow together. Father, just bless us, bless the families that are here. Give us the humility and strength as husbands and wives to embrace what you will and can do through us if we will let you. Thank you again for your word, the way it speaks into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's stand. Our men are going to come and receive our offerings this morning. If you have a response card in need, uh, if you need counseling, uh, you can communicate that on the cards. Go ahead and fill those out. Any tear-offs, if you're going to be a part of the dinner, the Friday night dinner, the all-you-can-eat fish and chips, fill that out. Tear that off. Stick that in the